Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The domestic season may be over, but we still have the closing stages of the Champions League and Europa League to play, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from our team of writers. I'm Mark Chapman. David is on a well-earned holiday this week, so it's just me and the writers and probably uh, a distinct lack of Arsenal. Although if you are an Arsenal fan, don't turn off because there's still lots of really good stuff to come. Anyhow, coming up, uh, exclusive insight into Chelsea's pursuit of Ben Chilwell and Thiago Silva. Uh, we'll talk about the Champions League final with our German football writer Raphael Honigstein, all the fallout from that, Bayern's triumph, what they're going to do transfer-wise and what it actually means for Thiago Alcantara, who continues to be heavily linked with a move to Liverpool. Uh, we'll hear from the Athletics' Matt Slater as well. Uh, with these details of how Richard Scudamore, the former Premier League chief exec, is joining forces with Billy Bean of Moneyball fame in a quest to buy a Premier League club. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up for that. Uh, and whilst I was off, David uh, started moonlighting with his own uh, YouTube Q&A show. That continues weekly. Ask Ornstein. He answers all the very best questions provided by subscribers to The Athletic. So head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel to watch the latest video. And also don't forget to subscribe to the channel because there's loads of great podcast content on there as well. Let's start with Chelsea then. Uh, after on Friday, David Ornstein and Liam Toomey broke the news that the Blues are on the verge of signing Ben Chilwell in a deal that will be worth around £50 million. Liam joins us now uh, with the latest. Uh, it feels, Liam, as, as though this deal has, has been in the works for quite some time. I think The Athletic first reported on it uh, back in December. Uh, Chelsea have probably been linked to them even before that, but it, it looks like Lampard's finally going to get his man. Yeah, finally. Uh, as you mentioned, it's been, a, it's been a long process and I think my colleague Simon Johnson deserves an awful lot of credit because he was he was ahead of the, the curve on this one, reporting it for The Athletic back in December that Lampard had had identified Chilwell as his number one choice at left back. And that position has never really wavered. Lampard made his mind up fairly early that he needed an upgrade at left back. He wasn't fully convinced by Marcus Alonso or, or Emerson. And I think they knew that they, they couldn't get Chilwell in January, even after they had the, the transfer ban reduced, with Leicester flying as high as they were in the Premier League. But it was always one that they were confident that they could revisit this summer and, and, and really make a serious approach. And I think Leicester's failure to qualify for the Champions League, coupled with Chelsea making it, and the, the broader financial fallout of the pandemic has all shifted the the financial equation in, in Chelsea's favour. 
and the eventual price that we're talking about, which is, um, as we understand it, no more than 50 million pounds in the region of sort of 45 to 50, is a lot less than what Leicester were originally asking for. They were asking for Harry Maguire type money around 80 million. And so I so think ha- in that have they, context, have they, have they managed that then? Because Leicester are, you know, known to drive a hard bargain. Although when it comes to Manchester United, everybody seems able to drive a hard bargain with Manchester United. But they they seem to to be able to drive a hard bargain. He's an English left-back, so that kind of puts up his premium as well. So have they managed to get him for what a lot of people would, would think is reasonable money? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a case of the, the circumstances shifting against Leicester, really, and, and, and in favour of Chelsea. Leicester need to raise a little bit of money from sales this this summer and if it's not Chilwell it would have had to have been someone else so I think they've made the judgment that Chilwell wanted to leave anyway he wanted to join Chelsea that that that's been clear for for some time now and they probably feel that they can replace him maybe slightly more cheaply or maybe even internally we've seen James Justin play at left back quite a bit for them and I, I just think Chelsea Chelsea refused to go away and they they made their interest very very clear I think Leicester's main hope was that Manchester City might come in and rival Chelsea for Chilwell and and create some sort of bidding war but as soon as that didn't materialize I think Chelsea felt very confident that not only that they could get Chilwell but they could get Chilwell at a price that was acceptable to them because they they were under no circumstances would Chelsea have paid for for Chilwell what Manchester United ended up paying for Harry Maguire especially with all the other business that, that Chelsea are trying to do in this transfer window. Lampard's feeling just to sort of round up the, the left back area before we move on to their other business in this window. Lampard's feeling was always that neither Emerson or Alonso were a left back. I mean there could be a left wing back but they weren't left backs. Yeah I think the the, the feeling he arrived at and um, I think I think the impression that a lot of Chelsea fans have got over the course of their their careers at Stamford Bridge is that both Emerson and Alonso are better going forward than they are defensively. They can't really defend their positions as fullbacks. Um, they probably need the extra security of of that additional centre back behind them. Particularly Alonso, who who doesn't quite have the speed, but does happen to be a uniquely gifted attacking player. So I think. What Lampard sees in Chilwell is the ability to be a bit more of a complete option there. He can defend his own his own position, but he also has the energy to get up and down, supply good crosses, contribute to the to the attack in combination with, with midfielders. So I think I think Lampard sees Chilwell as someone who ticks all the boxes and at the age that he is, only twenty three, he can be a long term solution to what has been a problem position for Chelsea. So they spend 45 to 50 million on him and there's still more money to spend is there? Well it certainly seems so I mean they haven't even completed what will be their biggest deal of this transfer window which is Kai Havertz That, that, and, isn't, and they... effect, that isn't affected then by 50 million on Chilwell Kai Havertz is, is still a doable deal Yes Yes, Chelsea are committed to to completing both deals in addition to the money that they've already committed on Hakim Ziyech and T- Timo Werner and uh, yeah, it, Roman Abramovich is being aggressive. I think Chelsea have been given a little bit of leeway by UEFA's temporary relaxation of FFP this summer to give clubs a bit of breathing room. It was always going to favour the kind of clubs that had billionaire benefactors or oil states behind them, um, funding them. And, and Chelsea have seen a unique opportunity here to 
to to strengthen their squad maybe jump up you know two or three levels in terms of squad strengthening rather than incremental improvements that you generally make in a transfer window that doesn't detract from the fact that they also will need to sell players because <laughs> aside from this squad now looking very big the wage bill is very big and so i think the next stage of this once Chilwell comes in, once a, a deal for Havertz is is properly concluded, um, I think you will see Marina Granovskaya being very proactive in trying to move some of the players that aren't in Lampard's plans. But presumably, they won't be in a great position to haggle over those players, will they? I mean, that in some ways, they might have to just accept whatever's offered for for a few of them to, as you say, to get them off the books. Yeah, I wrote I wrote a piece about this um, about a week ago, actually, with Don Fifield. We're talking about the challenges of this market, and we were talking to a few agents who who deal with Premier League players, who who were saying that it's it, it's a really really difficult environment to get any sort of value for for players that you don't want. The biggest one, really, for Chelsea at the moment is someone like Danny Drinkwater, who's on a six figure weekly wage and has had. A, a year that has further depressed his value at getting anything for for him from any sort of Premier League club would be maybe Marina Granovsky's greatest achievement at this point. It's a very difficult job. I mean, we, we've seen with Timu Bakayoko that there's lots of talk of him going back to Milan on loan with an option to buy. And that's something we might see more broadly with some of the players that are on the fringes of Lampard's squad. I think Chelsea might decide to to park some of these discussions for a year or maybe insert obligations to buy or options to buy in some of these deals. But I, I think the wage bill is the biggest thing to address. So you might need to see Chelsea compromising over sale price, which is not something Marina Gravsky is used to doing. Okay, so you've got the big money signings coming in. You've got uh, a wage bill that just won't be sustainable and they'll need to move players on. So where does that leave the rumours and the supposed advanced talks that Chelsea are having with Thiago Silva. Yes, I think this is a this is a classic case of Chelsea being slightly opportunistic and pragmatic in the in the transfer market because Thiago Silva does not fit the same profile of a Kai Havertz or or a Timo Werner, a long term club target that they've scouted for a long time. He is an, a, a veteran free agent who. At best, you would say is is a is a very short term fix for one of the biggest problems in this squad, which is the um, the, the dearth of quality at centre back and the dearth of leadership. I would say in that position as well. I think that's what they see in Thiago Silva. It looks increasingly like that deal will get done. One of the things we don't quite know yet is just how long the contract will be. I can't I can't imagine Chelsea giving him more than two years. I, I'm sure they'd love to give him one. He thinks he can play for about three or four more years at the top level. And we'll see. I mean, he's just played in the Champions League final and, and, and didn't get exposed too much no. by the best attack in Europe. But it is unprecedented for a player to come in at his age. He'll be 36 in September to the Premier League, which is maybe the fastest, most intense major league in Europe and be an impact player for a top club. You know, it, it is unprecedented. So it will be fascinating to see how it pans out, but it's easy to see from a personality standpoint and experience standpoint what Frank Lampard sees in him. Uh, and there will be some as well saying, even if it's for a year, that then gives Chelsea another 12 months to, to work on trying to get Declan Rice away from West Ham. Yeah, I, I think that's still the long-term plan. Lampard really likes Declan Rice, not just in terms of his skill set, 
but also his personality. He is that kind of leader. He has a real presence on the pitch despite his his youth. But it, the transfer just doesn't look feasible this summer with West Ham demanding 70, 80 million for him. And, it, and it's understandable, you know, he probably is worth that much to West Ham. But with the amount of money that Chelsea are already committing on other transfers, they're spending a lot, but there are still limits. And I think um, I, I think Rice, at that, at that sort of price, probably makes more sense to wait another year, see how things develop and then revisit it next summer perhaps when you know he's well, he's got one year less on his contract perhaps when the he he feels a great sense of urgency to try and move on to bigger things good to talk to you liam thank you thanks thank you and don't forget you can keep your eyes on the athletics transfer tracker for the latest on all of those deals this podcast is brought to you by manscaped the expert in men's below the belt grooming manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels and manscaped has just launched in the uk we've gone years without using the right tools for the job so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping right now by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. So Bayern Munich have won their sixth Champions League title and they did it with a starting eleven that cost just under 130 million euros compared to Paris Saint-Germain who have spent over 400 million euros just on Neymar and Mbappe. So how have Bayern managed to reach the summit of European football with such a shrewd approach in the transfer market? To explain that and to discuss the game and the fallout from it, the Athletics German football writer Raphael Honigstein. We'll come to the transfers shortly and Bayern's strategy. But first, Raph, what's the reaction been like in Munich and Germany as a whole after Bayern's win? Elation, huge satisfaction, uh, a sense of grudging respect, I think, for, for neutrals as well. <laughs> we don't necessarily harbour um, strong positive feelings about Bayern uh, as a club or as a team. But I think as a team, if you distinguish from, from the club and from it represents, I think it's very difficult not to not to like the, these guys um, a lot of them are young guys who who are friends who talked about the brotherhood that exists in the team um, Hansi Flick has of course fostered that atmosphere as well and all around I think it's very easy to admire what they've done this season especially in the Champions League where they've gone through winning every single game and while this was a close shave and could have easily gone the other way I think on the night I think it's fair to say that they throughout the campaign have been the most convincing team in a very very difficult and challenging season and a lot of people are making the point that Bayern with their strong sort of intrinsic motivation and and a real professionalism that this team embodies were perhaps better placed than others to deal with these uh, very tricky circumstances and with the kind of self coaching element that was probably necessary to perform at the highest level when there's no fans around to push you. How far do we go back then to how Bayern changed transfer wise in, in particular? I think we've seen two phases. I think the first one was really a reaction um, to the 2012 defeat. Big Champions League defeats in Bayern mythology have often been used as a catalyst for positive change or at least some positive momentum. 
It happened in 99 when the team became very close and, and became this kind of bunch of sort of desperados out to, to prove everyone wrong. 2012 had a similar dynamic as far as the relationship between the players and the relationship between the players and Jupp Heynckes was concerned. But also Bayern made some made some good moves in the transfer market to address some of the problems that they'd identified. They bought a new centre-back, they bought a new striker and they bought a new midfielder to address weaknesses and gaps in the squad. And I think since the arrival of Matthias Sommer that year and of Michael Reschke a couple of years later, both are no longer there, but they, they were instrumental in overseeing the, the overhaul of the scouting system. Uh, Marco Neppert, the chief scout, arrived soon after. Now you have Hassan Salihamidzic, the sports director. Bayern have become progressively better at, at doing this kind of stuff. And I think what's been very important for them will, again, two failures, if you will, or lessons learned from when Kevin De Bruyne left to Wolfsburg and Leroy Sané moved to Manchester City from Schalke. Both were players that Bayern could have had. Um, it went so far as them believing that Kevin De Bruyne actually preferred a move to Bayern rather than Wolfsburg. But Bayern felt the valuations were too high for such young players and that they shouldn't do this deal. And they came to regret uh, both of them. And I think the lesson they learned from that is to go more aggressively after players earlier. Um, they will no longer wait as they used to for players to be 25, 26 and then try to, to poach them from another Bundesliga team or to, to buy them from abroad because in all likelihood they're out of even of, out of Bayern's price, price range. So now the new, if you will, the new policy over the last few years has been to get these players in more uh, earlier and then use the money rather than spending it on the transfer fee to use it on the wages to keep the existing stars locked in and to make sure that those who are coming don't see Bayern as a stepping stone but make Bayern their final destination. And I think that uh, bit of shrewdness in the transfer market underpins the success that we've seen even though you know, it still needed the, the talent of uh, Hansi Flick and all the other things we mentioned before to to bring it to fruition this season. I suppose there are a couple of things there then, which is one, they still have the financial might, don't they, to to go for someone if they really... So they may have missed out on Sane when he left to come to Manchester City, but they've gone for him big time in taking him from Manchester City. And also... Maybe they can still wait, because this is something we've discussed before, they can still wait when they know a Bundesliga player is coming to the end of his contract and they want him because they know that they are Bayern and they are the biggest attraction in Germany. Yeah, all these things actually come together. I mean, uh, running down players' contracts, if it's possible, of course, is the best possible way to sign somebody. You still pay a huge sign-on fee for the player. You still pay huge commissions to the agent, much bigger than you'd otherwise pay for a transfer fee, but you still, in absolute terms, still save a lot of money. That's not always possible because most of the time these kind of players are not will not run down the contracts. They won't be in their last year of their contract and it'd be very difficult to, to make that happen. But if it is possible... Uh, we've seen that with Lewandowski, with Gretzka, with Alexander Nubel. Um, Bayern can throw their weight around, both in terms of the money that they can offer, but also, of course, all the other benefits that come with it. You know, the almost guaranteed trophies, Champions League competitiveness, protection as far as the media and the national team is concerned, all these issues that make Bayern very, very attractive for a German national. The other thing is, is of course, right. And I think it is only fair, as, as many readers have pointed out, to say that 
Bayern still do spend big on individual players. Lucas Hernandez was bought for 80 million euros, isn't in the current uh, starting 11. Leroy Sané is coming for 60 million euros. But of course, those big expenditure are only possible because the bulk of the team doesn't cost a lot or hasn't cost a lot in terms of wages. So they can then concentrate on one or two players every other year for these kind of sums because they don't have to do it every year. They don't have to go out and spend 30, 40 million pounds on squad players like many, maybe not many, but some of their rivals have to do, especially if you look around the Champions League where, um, you know, where teams with similar wage bills and similar revenues just haven't been quite as competitive in recent years. And of course, the other thing, when they are able to get um, players on, on free transfers, it means they don't actually strengthen their rivals by giving them some by giving them financial help which is a problem for the league and i think it's yeah. the league would prefer the league would prefer to to sell these players to Bayern or would sell them abroad of course ultimately it doesn't really change all that much i think for the league it would be better if Bayern weren't able to do this and then schalke could use the 40 million they would make on gretzka to to strengthen or to to buy someone else from from lower down the food chain and they could then reinvest but um, at the same time, the the overall dynamic doesn't change. And I think this is something that perhaps is, isn't always uh, appreciated because even if Bayern were to make a decision tomorrow to not buy any German players whatsoever, whether that's on a free transfer or spending big money, their dominance would not cease because you would see simply happen what's, what you will see happen this summer where Bayern are not a buyer um, for for many reasons, and the most coveted players still move, but they move abroad. So the relative advantage doesn't really change. Um, you know, the competitors lose their best players, Bayern keep their best players. It's just less extreme if the best players move straight away to Bayern. But overall, um, the balance of power is is unaffected by by Bayern's tendency to to buy rivals players, even if they're if they're stopping. It's, it doesn't really matter. So that's the Bayern incomings dealt with and, and how they run their transfer policy. A lot of people will, will be asking why they seem to be willing to let Thiago go. What's the latest on him? They're not willing to let him go at all. They would love to keep him. But the situation with COVID-19 and, and, and the losses of income, even at Bayern level, are such that they just cannot go and and pretend that um, you know losing an asset like him... Um, for free next season is, is something that they want or can do at the moment. So they're still expecting him to come with a club that's that's willing to pay, um, pay by a fee that they accept for this last year they has on contract. Um, as of today, I don't, I haven't heard anything about official contact being made. I'm sure there's there's third parties involved. I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background. But basically, the situation is still as it has been for a month or so that Bayern are bracing themselves, waiting for a club to come forward and say, OK, we actually want Thiago for next season. Um, there is a lot of talk at Liverpool at Munich. They all think at Bayern that Liverpool is the preferred destination. But Liverpool have not, as my understanding, uh, that's my understanding, actually come forward and says, yes, here's, here's the money that we're prepared to buy. Uh, prepared to spend, we want to buy him. And they're waiting for that to happen. What does this do for Hansi Flick, this victory? Well, someone made the point on Twitter that 
<laughs> and I think it's just <laughs> worth report, uh, repeating that Hansi Flick will now get a call in 10 years' time, every single time there's a crisis, for Bayern asking him, can you come back and do another <laughs> stint like you're behind your pankers and not Mahitsvah before? I mean, it's remarkable that he's become the third Bayern manager in modern times to win, to win the Champions League based on, yes, of course, good tactics, but more so on his ability to, to bring this team together and to make everyone feel valued and happy. I think at a club like Bayern, where you have a lot of big egos and where you have to deal with a lot of players who are unhappy because they're not regulars, I think that's a very underrated and appreciated ability to do effectively and, and with being honest and without you know, trying to, to make everyone happy in a way that is just not possible because um, I think what other managers sometimes do is they promise everything to everyone and then six months later are revealed as people who just weren't really straight with players and then they lose the dressing room. With Flick, he's been straightforward, honest, respectful, em empathetic with everyone and it really has, has just made buying that extra little bit better. Uh, in itself, it's not enough. But if you combine that with all the quality that is there, individually and collectively, and you have a working system that that brings out the best of the players and that the players appreciate playing in, then it makes for a really powerful combination. And Bayern, I think, didn't realise that he would be quite as good as doing this job, but they're just incredibly happy that they stumbled upon what looks like the perfect coach for them. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, because they have stumbled upon and and in 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 this, as you all know, covering an awful lot of football across the continent, in this era of analytics and so much data and so much analysis by everybody, both inside and outside the sport, to sort of, to sort of stumble upon someone who has done it by being a, I'm not doing him a disservice here, but by being a genuinely nice, honest bloke first and foremost is. It's quite remarkable. It is. I mean, I think we'd be underselling him a little bit if we, if yes, we weren't, yeah. <laughs> if we weren't saying that he does, um, by all accounts, work incredibly hard. I mean, this is the guy who devised like a, a playbook and, and practice session book for, for the national team, encompassing, I think, 200 pages detailing every single uh, training session. So there is, a, there is a strong analytical mind and a very obsessive meticulous way of working behind all the, the the nice the nice guy stuff but i think the meticulous work and the, and, and all that is, is kind of a given now and then then i think what really matters is what can you add on top of that it's no longer good enough to be just a man management man manager it's no longer good enough just to be a, a, a technically a good coach you need to combine both and I think Bayern weren't quite sure that he had big, a big enough persona, charisma, experience, um, all these things that, that you know, a super club usually demand from their, their figurehead to, to pull this job off. And that's why they, they gave themselves a lot of time to evaluate his work and to look at the results. But the results were such that they just couldn't, could not give him, <laughs> couldn't, not give him the, the job because he just kept winning. And more importantly, winning in a way that has been hugely impressive. I mean, this Bayern team have played as well, as consistently, as thrillingly as any Bayern team we have seen since Pep Guardiola has left. And of course, he was able to go one step further than, than Pep uh, by bringing the Champions League back. So he's done everything and more than Bayern could have hoped for from a manager. And just a final one on him then. Have they, to all intents and purposes, played the same way, the same formation, I appreciate personnel might change every now and then as it did in the final, but 
Has have they played the same way no matter who they've been up against? Yeah, by and large, yes. Uh, the system yeah. has been very fixed. It's been a four-two-three-one, which is really designed around uh, Thomas Müller, because it's not it's not a system that a lot of coaches like these days because you're sometimes um, outnumbered in midfield if you play effectively with four attackers. But Bayern's work up front and those high lines and the short distances between the different parts of the team have enabled uh, the team to play this way. And, you know, it's a simple story, really, that goes back to, to, to Barcelona under, under Pep. If you have tremendously gifted players who then also are prepared to work as hard off the ball to win the ball back as this Bayern team are, then despite the risk and despite the, the chances and the space that you concede, you are very difficult to, to live with for any opposition. And they have conceded goals, but they've also scored 116 goals. <laughs> and uh, they've destroyed the last four teams in the Champions League, 16 to three. Yes, PSG was, was the closest of all those games. It could have gone either way. I think expected goals had it at 1.1 to 1.1. So really not a lot in it. But um, it really was the, the culmination of a hugely impressive and very convincing campaign. Just a quick one then on something else, Raf, before we go. What, what is the latest, as you understand it, on Kai Havertz? Because in between talking to Liam a little bit ago and now talking to you, uh, there are reports that a deal is virtually done between Chelsea and Bayer Leverkusen. Yes, yeah, so Bayer Leverkusen are, are issuing a denial uh, as we're recording this, saying that a deal is not done. Uh, we'll have to see how, how exactly it's phrased. I think it's fair to say that the um, parties involved are still, I think, on a on a reasonable path to an agreement being reached within the time frame that Leverkusen have set, uh, the 28th of, April, of August. But it seems that Leverkusen are not happy with the way that this is being presented as a fait accompli, uh, as my learned French friend Louis, uh, uh, Julien Laurence <laughs> would put it, uh, although he probably won't say anything today and just uh, hide in a, in, a, in a hole somewhere. But uh, that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> You've got a dig at him even now. Oh, dear. No, it's, it's just <laughs> very friendly, friendly banter. Um, so, yeah, uh, we'll have to see how this part of this, the pod survives or looks, uh, you know, once more, more information will emerge today. But I think it's not quite done yet. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. Our final story on this week's pod centres on the headline that was on Matt Slater's piece at the weekend. Scudamore joins Moneyball's Bean in group aiming to buy Premier League club. But if you delve deeper into that article, there are plenty of other names involved in this, such as former US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former CIA Director Robert Gates, uh, former guest of this podcast, not quite the same glamorous title as the others, Damien Camoli. And most interestingly, just because I can't get this image of Richard Scudamore meeting this man out of my head, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, 
And it's impossible to know where to begin mm. with this, Matt Slater. Um, it, that is a remarkable group of people. Well, it is. And um, <laughs> whilst they're all in the story, they, they might not all be kind of trying to buy a Premier League club of Richard Scudamore and Billy Bates. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I managed to name check lots of them. It's about this new company. They're called, catchy title, Red Bull Acquisition Corp. Uh, we're going to call them Red Bull, uh, not the drink. This is Red Bull as in round thing that you play football with and they're, look they're interesting for, for a variety of reasons I mean one is just the nature of the company so they are what is known uh, as a special purpose acquisition company or in the states they often call them blank check companies they are they're shell companies that are set up specifically to buy something and they, they you start with the initial public offering so you start with the the listing on a stock exchange to raise the money and you kind of put a prospectus out saying, look, we are interested in buying this kind of company. Here's our board to give you kind of a clue as to sort of what we're about. Do you want to buy shares in us? And away we go. And the thing about Red Bull is is really just as you've alluded to in your question. So they, they're kind of born of a, of a larger private equity firm that's based in New York called Red Bird, who have some really interesting sort of high-powered investors on, on their board and in their management team. The main guy there is called Jerry Cardinale. You know, they've been, they've been investing in all kinds of interesting uh, companies. And one of them is the, is the Dwayne Johnson link. They, they bought XFL, which uh, might not mean much to, to sort of our UK listeners. but It's a little bit like, I suppose, T20 yes. to county championship cricket in that they, they, go, they go down the entertainment route. They get rid of some of the flab that's around an NFL game, try and shorten it, tighten it, make it more entertaining. And as you say, fill the gap when there is actually no NFL once the Super Bowl is is done and dusted. So it's it's sort of sports and entertainment meets. Very much it, so. Really? And look, they've had a couple goes and they, they were having a go this year before before um, yeah. coronavirus hit. And it, it seems to be doing all right. I mean, I, I didn't can't say I've watched any of them, but I mean, I, I read sort of in kind of sports business that it was doing okay. But then, of course, lockdown happens and, and it all shuts down and, um, you know, pretty much was, was, was heading towards bankruptcy. And Red Bird bought them and it, as a sort of joint venture with Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, that's so that's a little bit about them, Red Bird. Now, this Red Bull company is, is very much new. It is this, as I said, this this blank check company that has been specifically set up to, to buy. Their, their perspective is vague. But the, the, the big clue is that they are interested in an overseas, probably a European football team. And to create some independence from Red Bird, uh, you have to have sort of a kind of a new board. And the board brings in some really interesting people. So it brings in Billy Bean. And actually, the name Red Bull is a portmanteau. It is it's, it's Red Bird meets Money Ball. Now, Billy Bean is, is famous, uh, I think, even here. Uh, whilst he's very much a baseball man and has sort of spent his entire life in baseball, um, very closely associated with the Oakland A's, he's he's famous for the film. You know, the film was about him. The book first in two thousand and three, then the film where Brad Pitt played him. I've met Billy Bean. He's he's not as good looking as Brad Pitt, but but he is a, he is a sort of charming, charismatic guy. And the, the, this is where we have got the Moneyball idea. I mean, the book was written by Michael Lewis, and it was very much a sort of kind of almost an economics book. It was sort of using 
using data and analytics to find gaps in the sports market that, that, that sports teams were being put together in the wrong way and there was value out there and a low budget team like the Oakland A's could compete with big budget teams like New York Yankees and we've been talking about this in football um, sort of ever since it had an enormous influence that that, that book and the film um, so you've got Jerry Cardinale, kind of the money guy. You've got Billy Bean, the kind of sports guy, who's always been interested in football. I've been along and I've heard him talk about football. Uh, he has a small stake in Barnsley. And that, again, is kind of an American investment group that is trying to sort of put together a kind of value version of uh, the City Football Group. They've got, they've got, um, they've just bought Ostend. They've got a Swiss team. They've got Barnsley. So he's involved there in a very small way. So you've got Cardinale meets Moneyballs, Billy Bean. And then the, the, the kind of the, the hook for us really is that Richard Scudamore has been a consultant to Red Bird for the last couple of years, ever since he, he left his position as, as executive chairman of the Premier League and is now on the board of Red Bull. So, um, you know, you have the guy that, that kind of oversaw the Premier League's ascent to you know global prominence you know an absolutely fantastic salesman always been comfortable in the states he used to he worked in the states before before he came back to the uk first to do the efl job and then to do the premier league job so you know he's always had an affinity with the states he's known cardinale for a while he's been a sounding board for cardinale for a bit he's now on this board of this new company as is a very very famous uh u.s economist called Professor Richard Thaler. I mean, he, he he has a Nobel Prize. It's not quite an official Nobel Prize, but it is, it is sort of considered as, as a, the Nobel Prize for economics, behavioral uh, behavioral economist. Uh, there's another guy called Lewis Wolf who uh, was being a, a part owner of of NBA teams and NHL teams. Uh, he's still he's still the owner of the San Jose uh, earth, Earthquakes in the MLS. So there's a lot of kind of sports meets business there's a couple of big investors there and then they've, they're yeah. being advised as you said by this kind of consultancy that has Condoleezza Rice who was George W Bush's the Secretary of State you've got Robert Gates you know former CIA director but he's also uh, uh, I think he was Defence Secretary in the States as well so you know and a, a pretty remarkable group of people that are behind this company i mean it, it does sound it does sound like it's got virtually everything covered off whether it be power politics uh, money entertainment uh, sport in general our football in particular premier league expertise it sounds like there's a tick to everything it doesn't sound like it's somebody who's been bankrupt three try three times trying to buy a football club again and fans wondering about fit and proper persons. So given the fact that they have all this expertise, they have all this knowledge, I would imagine there are a lot of fans, <laughs> maybe of a Newcastle persuasion, thinking, buy us, buy us, we're available, please please buy us. Would Newcastle be top of the list or is it too early to say who they're looking at? It's too early to say. So they, it's all happened quite quickly, but they are now listed on the New York Stock Exchange um, they did a, as I said, this IPO, this initial public offering where they were going to sell. Initially, I think they were going to sell their ten dollar the shares, ten dollar shares, brought to market by Goldman Sachs. So again, you know, another blue chip name. They they were oversubscribed, so they 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 sold a few more, and they got this war chest of five hundred and seventy five million dollars. Now, the way these blank check companies work is the clock ticks. You've got two years to do something with this money, or you give it back to your investors. So it's two years minus about a couple of weeks now. 
as I say, you know, the, the shares are there, tradable on New York Stock Exchange if you want to go invest in them. Now, I think they're going to take their time. They, from what I understand, I spoke to quite a few people about them. No one really wanted to go on the record as such, but they have, oh my word, the tongues are wagging because of, you know, there's an amount of money. It's 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 not a speculative amount of money, $575 million, 440 or million pounds. They can, the way the blank check companies work is that you can then leverage that. You can borrow a bit more. They could buy all of someone or they could buy a strategic stake in someone. I am led to believe that this is not a sort of itsy bitsy move because Redbird bought to lose so Redbird, the sort of kind of parent company bought Toulouse, who are now in the second tier of French football for about 30 odd million euros, I think that was. This is not that kind of thing. I think they are going for a big club, which does, of course, then bring into, well, all sorts of exciting things. And some of the people I spoke to mentioned, well, they could buy a strategic stake in a Spurs, for example, or they could buy all of a Newcastle. Now, among the clubs that whenever I talk to uh, people who are in this field, in this area, there are clubs that keep coming up because these are the clubs that we know are for sale. So Newcastle are obviously top of the list. We know they're for sale. They've been for sale for a while, actively for sale. And then Southampton are often discussed. Burnley are often discussed. I wonder if Southampton and Burnley are quite big enough for these guys. That would sort of seem perhaps a little underwhelming given the names and the, the potential. Spurs are interesting because they are sort of a classic not for sale, but of course we're for sale. Knock on my door, make me an offer type club. They, you know, that's that's that, that's the nature of business. This is where you get it gets really interesting now because it, how do you value a club? You know, what 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 is the value of a club? So, you know, for example, there was a conversation I think a year or so ago when Saudi Arabia was was perhaps interested in Manchester United, and it was well, you know, it's 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 three billion plus. Roman Abramovich is understood to have put a price tag on Chelsea of sort of 2.2, 2.3 billion and that kind of scared off um, Ratcliffe, didn't it? So Jim Ratcliffe, Britain's richest man. Spurs, well, it's interesting because the Universal Liverpool did a did a valuations report. They do one every year. And actually this year's was interesting. They made Spurs the most valuable, possibly because of their history of being a well-run business that actually makes profit and the fact they've got this fantastic new stadium. But then you look at another way of measuring clubs, uh, a Forbes is a you know big business uh, magazine in the states. They had Spurs as the sixth of the big six. You know a kind of more affordable, one point six, one point sort of seven sort of billion dollars, which you know Red Bull could buy half of. You know if you if they if they could leverage some money, you could buy 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 a stake. So look, I think it's too early. Scudamore is there as a sounding board, as an advisor. He is that bridge. He gives them that knowledge of what's possible. And I think it's just going to be really, really exciting to see what happens, when it happens, how it happens. But no one can doubt the seriousness and the intellectual firepower that they have. And, and that two years to either do something or give them the money back to the investors, that two years does give them some breathing space, some leeway as they see how the world develops economically from COVID. It, it does. I think that's a really important point to make. Because, look, Americans have been interested in, in, in European football for a while. It's sort of come in waves. There appears to be another wave going on. It was, it was sort of being discussed and talked about that kind of Americans were coming even pre-lockdown. Then, then the coronavirus hits. And there are sort of one or two things. The point you make is clear. You know, 
do we want to dive in right now? Should we not just see how this plays out when the fans are coming back in, if they'll come back in, what happens with TV ratings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's, a, there's of course, a flip side to that, and that's, well, people are panicking. You know, you know the, the crisis equals opportunity, that old sort of adage. And um, valuations might take a dip now. People might be distracted or might just need their cash to do something else that they have in their other, you know, the rest of their business life. So someone sitting there with a sizable chunk of money, the stated aim of doing this and, you know, and a, a clock, there's a natural deadline. We all work better with deadlines. I certainly do. They, so I think it's interesting. I mean, we, we could see them go fast. We could say, look, now's the time. Or we could say, right, okay, let's just see what happens. I, I'm fascinated by this. It's, it's a new concept for, for buying a football club, for sure, but there's some great names there. And it is one we will definitely keep an eye on. Matt, thank you very much. Talk soon. No problem at all. Right, that's it from us for this week. Don't forget, you can go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and get The Athletic free for 30 days. You'll get all the very best football writing around and we'll see you next week. Bye.